Hello, everyone, and welcome to Goliath Cybersecurity Group's podcast called Cyber Insanity. I'm your host, Andrew Bracuda, along with Angelo Longo. How are you doing today? Doing well. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Rick Kuiper from Kuiper Tech. And this is along our series a bit, and, and it kind of crosses two series for you. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, the first series was uh, continuing the people process and technology, focusing on process and, and, and that uh, with respect to incident response and forensics. But also uh, for, uh, for the series, this is not like the movies. <clears throat> so we'll get a little bit into that. But uh, welcome, Rick. And, and I was wondering if you can just kind of do a, a little introduction of who you are, uh, what are some of the things you've done or worked in and, and maybe some uh, interesting projects you can share with our audience today? Sure, absolutely. Um, uh, I was a special agent uh, and forensic examiner uh, with the FBI for 20 years. I recently retired. Um, I actually started out um, uh, as a physics teacher, a high school physics teacher, prior to coming into the FBI and, and got involved in the Internet uh, taught some of the basic stuff to my students. This is before the World Wide Web uh, was was really popular. Um, uh, assigned a lot of assignments, uh, taught them how to um, uh, develop web pages and things like that, even before we had a server. And then when we went online, uh, we were the first uh, web server in the county. Uh, and we had over a thousand web pages developed by my physics students that we could immediately put online. So that was that was kind of cool. Um, I was recruited into the FBI um, in 99. They weren't interested in computer stuff at that time. They were only interested in uh, my Spanish language. <laughs> they said, if you could speak Spanish and pass this test, you're in. Today, they are absolutely interested in computer stuff. So, um, you know, highly encourage people to take a look at that. When I got into the FBI, uh, started in white collar crime, organized crime, did a lot of um, big uh, fraud cases, uh, forex exchange fraud, and and that sort of thing. Uh, and I was a big customer of computer forensics at that time, uh, meaning that uh, when I went out and I did searches and we collected uh, computers and things like that, it went to a team at the FBI called the Computer Analysis Response Team, or CART. Okay. And yeah, yeah, and. Um, so uh, the CART folks are the ones that actually uh, uh, processed all the digital evidence uh, that I collected in my in my uh, investigations. And then I said, well, this is kind of cool. And, and I have some computer skills. Why don't, why don't I do that? So I, I got on the OJT and, uh, and started with CART. So and then as time went on, I um, began to teach for CART. And then I uh, actually taught the teachers. I was involved in the instructor development program wow. for the FBI. And since I had a CART background, actually CART, I actually taught the instructors of the computer <laughs> forensic examiners uh, in the FBI. So um, that was a lot of fun. Some of the cases I, I worked on, uh, I mean, more than half of all computer forensic cases in the FBI are unfortunately child pornography cases or today they're they're calling it CSAM and all the the legal paperwork that I see uh one of the the more famous ones uh, I had was a 
congressional staffer uh, for a um, Texas congressman. And the interesting thing about this one is I was able to, this is one of the bigger ones, so I was able to apply all of the things that I learned in the Sands Institute, if if you're familiar with that. Um, there's a guy named Rob Lee who teaches uh, the, the DFIR program, authored a couple of courses. But anyway, he really stressed uh, timeline analysis. Okay, and that, that's sort of relevant to, to what we're going to talk about today. But basically taking all the artifacts and putting all the artifacts in a uh, spreadsheet format so you can get timeline. And when you have that timeline of things that are going on, you you have a better chance of, of user attribution. Okay, we can attribute things that we see to actual users. And with that case, the Congress, the Congress congressional uh, staffer case, uh, I did a great timeline. I, uh, I was able to uh, demonstrate that he received, not only did he receive it via email, but he unzipped it. He uh, created a folder for it, you know, through shell bags. I was able to, you know, uh, determine when he went into the folder and he viewed it and, you know, all the different um, forensic artifacts that went into demonstrating that, you know, intent basically for this guy. Right. And um, I, I, you know, th there was a DOJ attorney that, they assigned to this because it was very, um, you know, it was kind of high profile. And I created 150 trial exhibits for this case. Ooh. And I was all ready to go because uh, the defense attorney was the same defense attorney in the sniper case. Do you remember that? Um, uh, the, you know, the, the guy that killed the uh, American sniper. Uh, and so I was ready to go, and then literally at 11 o'clock on the Friday before the Monday trial, he decided to plead guilty. So, yeah, it was kind of a disappointment. Yeah, it was a disappointment. One of the characters that he exchanged uh, child pornography with was a guy who went by the handle uh, Mesquite Man Panties. And, uh, <laughs> and wow. uh, from Mesquite, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so looking forward to talking about Mr. Uh, Mesquite Man Panties on the stand, but it didn't happen. So, sorry. <laughs> no, um, as, as tragic as that is, it is weird. It is nice to see that at least the justice system rolled and made something happen here. So that that that's a very positive note in that in that thought. Although a Mesquite Man Panties was a was a missed opportunity. So. But now you here you go. <laughs> Well, it was such completed. So there, there you go. So job yeah. well done. So I guess cart is not kind of, uh, and this is kind of where the where we get with our 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 other topic of of this is not how it is in TV. So this, cart is not kind of like our cl criminal minds episode where you know people jumping out of helicopters on ropes, rappelling down, and and somebody with uh, fuzzy things on her computer goes in and be and is able to um show every every aspect of your life and and from your home cameras or or the street cameras or whatever i mean this is this is clearly dispelling that i would imagine <laughs> well i i t I'll tell you what um uh, after i retired i started teaching um overseas i mean i did a lot of teaching for the fbi so it kind of prepared me very well for for uh teaching for other companies and I was in Abu Dhabi about uh, two years ago when I started to um, to to begin my uh, digital forensics block on uh, with two videos, and I showed them two videos. One 
is, uh, I don't know if you've seen this on YouTube, it's called the Let's Enhance video. And it's a compilation. It's like a supercut of all these different, you know, CSI type of um, shows and has MacGyver in there. It's got a bunch. Oh, wow. And they're all saying, you know, enhance and, you know, zoom in <laughs> on the reflection of the eyeball. Enhance. <laughs> zoom in. Enhance. You know, like you can, you know, <clears throat> you could take a, you know, a, a grainy video uh, right. camera. And, and if the license plate is one pixel, you can take that one pixel and blow it up and you get a number. Right. And, and um, crystal clear too. And crystal clear. That's what enhance, you know. That so let's enhance. If you get a chance to look at that, it's it's about a, a couple of minutes long. But then I showed them a clip of Futurama, and I'm not a huge fan of, uh, or you know a big follower of Futurama, but they do have a very uh, short scene, and it's also called Let's Enhance. And uh, the commander of this ship uh, says, okay, uh, zoom in on this Death Star looking thing. And they zoom in and it's all pixely. And he says, why is it still blurry? And the attendant says, you know, uh, you know, that's all the resolution we have. Just blowing it up doesn't make it clearer. <laughs> and I asked the students, which is more realistic, the cartoon <laughs> or all of these TV shows that we see and watch? And obviously, you know, the Futurama episode highlighted the fact that, uh, you know, there are limitations uh, to what we can do. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anecdotally, along those same lines, my daughter asked me, hey, we're watching the first Star Wars again. And she goes, hey, where's the CGI in here? I'm like, it's paintings in the background. There, there was models and paintings. This is what they did back then. Not like, <laughs> there was no computer creating some type of vast experience that you could walk into. So uh, timelines, timelines, back to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so I, I guess really we want to, we want to touch on incident response and forensics, right? It, by definition, what do you in the cybersecurity? Um, because it has different, different uh, pillars you can apply, but incident response and forensics, how do you define that today? Yeah, um, and and usually, I guess we we uh, usually consider a DFIR together, uh, digital forensics, incident response. Um, Devin Ackerman, who is a former um, FBI agent and uh, used to work in our, our program as well, uh, has a great website called aboutdfir.com. Uh, it's got a lot of great information about uh, you know both sides of this. I mean. Uh, incident response is, is uh, you know, basically handling the problem as it's happening, right? Or trying to, you know, trying to address the tr problem as it's happening. Um, although, uh, if you look at all of the um, uh, all of the models for incident response, um, all of the frameworks you can say for incident response, they all begin with like prepare, you know, the, as the first step. The first step is to prepare for the incident response, right? Um, so, uh, and then, you know, digital forensics uh, comes along when we're talking about, you know, the preservation, we, we preserve uh, the, you know, the hard drives, we preserve the memory, you know, we want to take memory dumps of everything we, we can. Um, I mean, and we recommend to people also, I mean, if at the very least, tell us, you know, get an idea of what the processes are, you know, do a, do a process dump. Uh, you know, send it to a text file, at least preserve some things. And that's that's in the digital forensics world. You know, that's what we're talking about. The, uh, you know, identification of forensic evidence and the and uh, the collection of it and the preservation of it. Um, 
And then once we have it preserved, then we can walk, uh, we can work off of the preserved copy called a digital forensic image. We can work off of that, keep the original, uh, you know, locked up. And then uh, we point all of our forensics tools at that and we do an examination, which parses out all the information and, um, you know, makes it human readable. And then either we or someone that we're working with, uh, the, the case agent, will then go in and do the analysis, which is finding out the relevant portions of that data that's relevant to the case. Uh, and then at the end of the day, we extract that data and we present it at trial. And, uh, you know, all the uh, digital forensic examiners in the FBI have to go through uh, you know, not only the sort of the academic and hands-on um, digital forensics training, but we also go through a moot court where we defend our findings in a moot court setting in order to prepare us to, uh, you know, to, to present information to a lay audience at, at trial. So, um, you know, sometimes the FBI, I, I, I should tell you, I'm, I'm involved right now in a case. Uh, it's the Keith Raniere uh, Nexium case. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's a guy named Keith Raniere um, who was uh, accused of, you know, uh, uh, taking women and branding them and making them sex slaves. He's this self-help guru. Uh, I had never heard of him before I retired and started looking at this case. Um, but the the important part is that the FBI, FBI part examiners in this case messed up in a gigantic way. Um, we, we talk about that process of identification, collection, preservation. It all kind of went out the window because in this case, there are only two pieces of, of, of digital forensic evidence that was used at trial, and both of them were tampered with. Um, and you can, well, the most obvious one is that there's a, a, a CF card, a compact flash card in a camera that was the, uh, the last access dates were updated while in the custody of the FBI. So someone at the very least looked at it in the FBI without a write blocker. And, uh, and and I won't go into all the details of the case. I mean, you could look it up and Google my name and, and Keith Frenieri and see all the uh, the times. My findings are published also on this case. But but one of the one of the things that was most um, you know atrocious, disgusting. I don't know how you would describe it. Things in this case where they where we were pushing the mm -hmm. fact that at trial. Um, they used a piece of evidence that was obviously um, altered while in the custody of the FBI. And through a bunch of filings going back and forth for, you know, Rule 33, which is a, a request for new trial filings, they, I, I wanted to share this with you at some point today. The government's response to this idea that they had, that the government had altered a key piece of evidence. This is what they said, and I wanted to read this to you word for word. The access was not the result of law enforcement tampering as Ranieri's motion claims, rather having no reason to believe that the metadata of the contents of the camera card had any evidentiary value, law enforcement agents directed that a photograph technician copy the photographs from the camera in order to provide the photographs more expeditiously to defense counsel. So right there, they're saying that having no reason to believe that the metadata of the contents 
was of any evidentiary value. Their whole case was metadata. Their whole case in that in this particular case was looking at the metadata of the photographs and saying because of the uh, if you know what EXIF data is in photographs um, when the photograph was actually taken because of the EXIF data and because of the file system metadata those photographs were um, aged are dated to a point where the subject of those photographs was 15 years old, therefore it's child pornography. That was basically their whole case digitally. And, and to, to admit in a court filing that uh, they didn't think that the metadata was important, so they just you know gave it to some photograph technician that they didn't disclose and who is not on the chain of custody. <laughs> and well, by the way, they admitted yeah, in and, court and, and, and then it was given to headache. the forensic examiner in an unsealed plastic baggie. Okay. Oh. Wow. So it is, and it goes on. I mean, it is, it is one of the worst examples of, you know, uh, uh, you know, the forensics process totally failing. And I, and I take it a little personally because I taught in that program. Fortunately, I didn't teach the knuckleheads who actually did this. Um, they weren't my students, but I taught in the program, so I, I know what they have been taught to do and to not do, and they completely failed in that regard. I feel like a disclaimer thing should go. Disclaimer, I did not train these knuckleheads. <laughs> <laughs> Make that happen. We'll throw we'll, we'll that across the screen. Right, there you right. go. Um, so, actually, so, wait, actually, Andrew, I have a question regarding, regarding yeah, this. Please, it actually stems, yeah, stems directly from this. There's a lot of parts here. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. We, we may have to have you back. Um, sure. We have, I've been through stuff like this in the past. And one of the things is trying to get, you know, want something meaningful to law enforcement, but also something, you know, we tend to correct, like grab everything and just shove it at law enforcement as if that's magically going to make something better. Um, and is there a more constructive way to bring and give evidence to, to the FBI or a law enforcement agency that can help them. In the end, I had an issue. Somebody did something bad. I want the, want their help. How do I do that in a constructive way that helps them get to the point quicker, better, and faster, and not touch all the, the pictures? <laughs> that's the key. What do I do and what I don't do? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. That's a great right. Yeah. For, well, forensically, I mean, if we're just talking about handing over evidence to the FBI, um, I mean, we're, I say we, my former agency, um, the FBI, the law enforcement agency, so we bring things to court. I mean, th that's the whole um, purpose of forensics. Forensics means, right, you're taking it in, in, in a court situation, and it'll hold up under legal scrutiny that way. In order to do that, it has to be preserved in a way uh, where it can hold up to that scrutiny. Unlike the case that I just described to you, um, you know, you want to, uh, uh, you know, have have someone that's certified in the tools that they are uh, they, that they are using. Uh, and if you don't have anybody on, uh, you know, on your workforce to do that, then you can hire somebody to do that that has those kind of credentials. Um, but, you know, hopefully you have somebody trained in at least preservation so you can create forensic images. You can do uh, memory dumps. Uh, Knowing that, you know, doing a memory dump itself will change the memory 
Okay, but you write those things down, and that's a that that's something else that a lot of people forget to do is take notes of what you're doing. Um, one of the things they pounded into our heads um, uh, at the Sands Institute, and and I have a, a second master's degree in um, information security engineering from the Sands Institute. Gone through a lot of their courses. I have eight of their certifications. Um, one of the things they pound into the head into our heads is that. Uh, if you're going too fast to take notes, then you're going too fast. Okay. If you cannot document what you're doing, mm. it is not going to help when you go to court. Now, it might might help you get somebody fired. Okay. If you identify, you know, maybe it's an insider threat and you identify the person inside the organization that, uh, you know, that's responsible for the malfeasance, um, you can certainly, you know, you don't have a Fourth Amendment right you know, the uh, with respect to the organization, you have a Fourth Amendment right uh, with respect to the uh, United States Constitution. So you need to be able to to uh, preserve evidence in a way that protects those rights and that will ultimately um, uh, be upheld in a court situation. So, yeah, uh, don't mess with the evidence. <laughs> and if you do have to, in the in the case of, you know, a memory dump, then take notes of what you're doing, exactly what you're doing and what your steps are. So for so for a small medium business that that um believes that they had a a some type of event, they're not quite sure. Maybe it's a breach, maybe it's some some type of of activity. Timing is of the essence because you're you're you make a very valid point. The whole point of authorities is to prepare for trial. And I think you used the terminology before we started this. It's right of bang. And I guess the sequence in the timeline would be somebody has intent, somebody does an act, and to the right of it is where authorities come in to pick up the pieces, to reconstruct it, to be able to forensically capture the evidence as as intact and and a, a, with the integrity in mind to prosecute somebody when they when they find out who did it. To the left of bang, or well, let's 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 start at the left of bang, the intent, right? We don't know who's going to be the threat actor against us. And and if you've and if you were a diver, you probably heard this before. Plan your dive, dive your plan. Right? <laughs> up front because if something goes bump in the night, you better know what to do. So it really begs the question of there's and, and Angela can probably speak more about this, the incident response planning, building the plan. What right. happened? What do I do? What's my what's my script to do this? And all those things that you just gave with um, preserving, don't touch, do this, don't do this, that should be part of that incident response plan, should it not? Right, right. Uh, and, and, and that's the key is, is knowing... Okay, well, there, there's two questions, right? There's yeah. one question about, um, you know, how do you prepare to avoid being hacked? And then there's another question, which is more relevant. Uh, how, do you, how do you prepare your organization for the inevitability that you're going to be hacked, right? Wow. <laughs> Those are kind of, there's a, kind of two separate questions a little bit. Um, uh, you, can, you can take steps in the preparation phase, you know, the, the, you know, the SANS, uh, you know, 
six. They have six. Uh, they have six steps. Uh, NIST actually mirrors those. I don't know who came up with it first, but yeah, preparation. Then you identify you identify what the threat is. You know, uh, you you have containment, you have eradication, you have recovery. Then you have lessons learned, right? Um, so those are steps that a lot of these uh, frameworks kind of share. Um, but in the preparation stage, you have things that you can do to to harden your system to to try to avoid being hacked. But then you have the the ultimate inevitability that you will be hacked at some point. Um, so the but I think the answer to both of those is is the plan it is the for your organization. What plan do you have? And and there are there's a lot of help out there to help organizations, medium, uh, you know, small to medium sized organizations for their plan. NIST has a special uh, publication 800. Uh, what is it? Dash 53. Yes. Um, th those are the security uh, uh, controls, and dot uh, sixty one is the instant handling guide. So there's there are things, that, and it's very detailed. Like it's it's almost like a laundry list of things that you should prepare for and look out for. Um, the uh, the the Center for Internet Security has the critical controls. Um, as a matter of fact, SANS. I'm not here to 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 sell you on a SANS course, but they have a couple of very good courses. Well, they have a lot of good courses. The ones relevant to what I'm saying here, okay? So one of them is called the um, the Critical Controls Certification. And that comes from the Center for Internet uh, Security. It used to be 20. Now I I, I can't remember now. It's, I think it went down to 18. They consolidated. But these are controls that you have that anybody can follow. And they're set up so that you can audit your own system or have an, you know someone come in and audit see how you're handling uh you know how many how many admin accounts that you have how many, your inventory something just as basic as, as keeping track of the stuff that you have so that if you see something on your network that you don't recognize you know <laughs> you can you you can look at that um so i mean it's um and then go uh uh what was i talking about okay so you have the yeah so you have the helps for nist um you have securing the human uh, which is something that SANS does. Um, almost every university that teaches uh, cybersecurity has some sort of, you know, patching the human. Nova Southeastern University has that securing the human. Everybody really um, recognizes the fact that that you can have the 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 best uh, security system, the best uh, you know intrusion detection system, prevention system, uh, the best SIM, the best you know best everything. But it takes one person in your organization to click on a PDF file or a link in a phishing scam, and then it's like you gave away the keys to the kingdom. So they really emphasize um, the oh the other SANS course I was going to highlight is their um, information security awareness uh, course. And at the end of that, you're actually creating an information security awareness program for an organization. And I've actually taught this uh, overseas. The, the, the people in the Philippines loved it. Um, but it's basically, it's not just about, you know, taking a, a an annual information security, you know, mandatory training, you know, and, and kind of clicking through that. It's a whole program. So it, it has to do with, uh, you know, how you provision your, uh, uh, bring your own devices. Uh, it has to do with, um, uh, uh, 
you know, creating a program where you're testing the phishing attempts on your people. And if, and if they do fall for the phishing, what happens? Uh, do they get some sort of remediation? Um, you set up, I mean, this is what a lot of people uh, miss also is you need to have a system and, a, and an email where people can uh, report things like if they know that they screwed up, they knew that they weren't supposed to click on that, but they did. And oh my gosh, what happened? You need a plan who to contact in your organization. If you get a phishing, uh, what you what you perceive, perceive to be a phishing email, what do you do with that? Do you send it to abuse at yourcompany.com? What is the procedure? So all of this is in the preparation uh, phase of this. And, um, and like I said, an information security program where you're actually changing the information security awareness culture of your organization, I think is the, uh, is the most effective way to approach it. Wow. That's good stuff. Um, I guess that, okay. So that's the left of bang, right? So that's the preparatory plan, plan your action type stuff. Looking, moving down the timeline to center the bang, that the action, right? Um, yeah. So a lot of times companies don't know what to do and a panic ensues, right? Angelo, you probably seen this too many times, right? The first inclination is unplug everything, uh, lock the doors, nobody leaves the room, call 911, uh, call your buddy in the FBI, right? And and you're waiting for helicopters to come down so people can rappel down with their computers and their handguns and, you know, with the with the, the vests with, the, you know, big emblazoned agency names across there and, and everybody musters around your parking lot. Um, not so, right? I mean, the, the first, I mean, Angelo, first, first thing you would do is what? <laughs> in the event like that i mean in, in real life um i yeah, would i mean i'd one first try to assess the information yeah assess what's going on you know is there really a breach or a b word we should say is there um is there a materiality to that to that um secondly is it is how how broad is that that issue or problem and thirdly it does it reach a point of where i need to involve anything beyond internal affairs with regard to what I'm doing. Once it reaches beyond that, my next step would be contact uh, an attorney and the insurance, maybe in different orders, because I want to make sure they're engaged. Because we, one of the things that you end up doing is you, you start looking at the privileges of conversations and stuff like that. And you want to coordinate it in such a way that if I do need to engage outside help, I want that help to be coordinated and managed in a way that's going to create the best opportunity for my company to protect itself. And so that's when, and typically the lawyer, the engaged lawyer for the cybersecurity lawyer would be the one who would reach out to a, a law enforcement agency, like an FBI or such like that. Now, this may all happen within microseconds of each other, if you have a plan. <laughs> um, the, you know, engage, yeah. because you also have to, before you reach out to the lawyer, you have to, you know, you have to tell the executive staff this is going on. You have to, you have to make sure that everybody's under aware that you now are executing plan crisis management, um, which will also involve some type of talking points, uh, restriction of, of communication, all those things. All that happens at once. If you're an SMB, you, yeah. you throw up your hands, you go, oh my God, they just, they, they, everything's going to, to pieces and I don't know what to do. 
you know, let let me call the let me call my local law enforcement. What happens? They ask a bunch of questions, and most likely they may not know what to do. <laughs> they, yeah. they 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 may not know the next step or what you should do. Yeah. Um, so this is what this is where it's important to get some type of cohesive plan together before you engage the enemy of this case. You know, every plan, you know, doesn't survive the first test with the enemy. But if you have a plan, at least you have a coordinated effort that goes and you can you can actually walk forward with. So th- these are these are my random thoughts of the day. So I, I don't want to uh, act like that they're there to answer everything. But having a plan and testing the plan stands yes. off a lot of issues. Um, it's when you don't and you're reacting after the fact is when you're picking up the pieces. So you said something very interesting, a cyber attorney, right? <clears throat> and, he, and you give it some thought and you go, okay, so why is a cyber attorney an, an interesting option or an interesting play? Usually it's going to be through the insurance agent uh, that has some type of attorney that's representing the insurance company or whatever. But a cyber attorney seems to be in a, a growing, um, a growing field, if you will, in, in the legal side of things, because of something that Rick said, preserving the evidence, right? The first thing you want to do is not manipulate any evidence because it has to be collected. It has to be analyzed by uh, by investigators for the forensics or the in, in incident responses, right? The teams want to have as much of this information untouched, I would imagine, so that they can do their proper due diligence, their tracing, and start, as Rick said, writing it down so you're not rushing through stuff and and possibly meddling with the evidence. But then also being able to trace what's happened, how it's occurred, what impact it's provided in the in the uh, in the environment, and if money's exchanged, where did it go? How did it how did it happen? And the attorney is a good um, go between between that part of the science of preserving that and the customer and the authorities, and it's kind of a good savant for all of these to be able to bring this in i mean rick is that something that you're seeing more and more of in this industry and and do you see success in this uh various degrees of success um first of all it's it's hard to get a good uh cyber attorney um and usually it's not the lead attorney on uh you know the the of the victim right it's usually someone that they hire on um because they have very specialized skills um, it's always good to have somebody like this. And on the on the prosecutor side, or you know, the investigation side, we also have attorneys that have been specially trained up uh, as well. Like in the in the Department of Justice, we have certain attorneys that we can go to, and we can talk the talk, and they know what we're talking about. Um, you know, if you just if you try to to uh, you know prosecute some of the stuff with a with a regular attorney, you know, their eyes roll. They you know, and they try to they they try to to get you to say stuff that isn't true um right. i don't know if you remember the the pulse nightclub uh shooting in orlando oh, yeah. uh the gay bar shoot up yeah. uh, so miami miami has had a, a bunch of these shootings by the, the miami fbi office where i worked um had a lot of these things but um you know there was a case um and i you know i'm not mentioning any names but but basically there was a piece of digital evidence uh, that we processed, our, our squad processed, and the uh, prosecutor wanted us to represent something that wasn't true about what we found. 
because they didn't understand it. They didn't understand, um, you know, how uh, flash uh, media works and how it, you know, how it moves data from one place to another instead of deleting and overwriting it actually copies data, you know, you know how it works. Um, and she wanted to say, well, no, there was, you know, this person searched this many times and we said, you know, we had to explain and it takes time to explain why they're wrong. And so it's, um, you know, it's it's good to have somebody on the victim side and on the prosecution side who, who can speak the language of what we're talking about. Um, the other thing is is the that we haven't really talked about is the is the flow of information of investigative information, and that is it's always a negotiate it's always a negotiating piece um, because it, as a rule the FBI isn't going to share what they have found with the victim, okay? So it's a lot of times it's like it's like a black hole it's like you're it's a one way street you're sending FBI all the information they want if they request it you give it to them and then you get no information back because they don't want to compromise the investigation um you know one of the um one of the cases i worked at a very ancillary um but i was tasked to go down to a let's just call it a um a latin american country because i'm not sure if it's been declassified yet but it was be believed to be um, uh, in this country, the computer, the, one of the very first um, victims of the WannaCry uh, ransomware exploit. Okay. Okay. And so I was sent down there because I speak Spanish. And um, <laughs> I, I asked them, I, I, was, I was coordinating with the FBI's legal attache office and with the country's intelligence service, uh, their version of the CIA, basically. And I told them very specifically leave the computers on. I want to go down and I want to dump the memory. Okay. That's one of the things that I very specifically uh, told them uh, because by this time it had already, you know, a lot of people, you know, we, we wanted to know um, the processes that were involved and, and how it, how it coordinated with things that we know indicators of compromise. Of, I feel of a punchline coming, actors. right? I, I know. That? I'm waiting for that. <laughs> I feel it coming. Too. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. So you, you know how this ends, right? Well, actually, there is a little twist at the end. Um, so we get I get down there, and I said, okay, when we when are we going to the site? And they said, oh, just come in here. And, they, and then they had a conference room, and they had all the computers off, disconnected. I'm like, oh, crap. And I had a trainee with me, and I said, okay, well, let's just start, uh, you know, uh, getting what we can. You know, it's basically dead box forensics at this point. So we started copying, and then I opened up one of the laptops, and it turned on. Like, oh, crap, and it was unlocked. So we said, okay, we're going to get at least one RAM dump. So wow. we did. Okay, I used dump it. Um, and so we got this RAM dump, and we sent it back to the uh, – this was a joint Los Angeles-New York case. So I didn't get to actually analyze it myself, but I sent the RAM dump and everything that we collected – back to the uh to the other uh cart elements of those cases and as it turns out th that was the the game changer in this case and the next week i can say this because trump uh announced it um that it was the north koreans that they had uh, identified as the people behind it and it was based on that ram dump so that's, awesome. that's another <laughs> another lesson is make sure you get 
the memory. If you can get it, get the memory because you're you're leaving gigabytes of information on the table if you don't get that memory. Yeah. So, but I, and you know what? There's one point I want to make um, in, in all this evidence gathering. What we're talking about is basically assembling a prosecution after the fact. What we're not talking about is stopping the bleeding. You know, you, you, you eventually need to stop the bleeding in your organization to keep, to keep you know, lock down the exits and, and make sure that people can't exfiltrate anything else or cause any more issues or do whatever. Right. This, you, there, is a, there is a fine, there's a, there's a, you want to preserve the evidence, but you also want to keep the business operational. So there's, a, there's, right. a, there's an issue at hand with the, with, sometimes that gets confused. Sometimes things are assumed. Like, well, isn't the FBI going to just shake? <laughs> <laughs> no, the FBI are the FBI is not a first responder. Should not be on your first responder list. Um, the FBI is very good at keeping track of past uh, bad things that have happened and can relate bad things. One of the things that the FBI did that was very good is establish the uh, Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3.gov, right? And that's for anybody. If if anybody, and, and this is what I tell people when they when they because they know my background, they say, "What can I do? This guy is is trying to extort me." Blah blah blah. I said, "Well, you can go to ic3.gov and put a complaint in and give them all the information that you have, all your." And I show them how to get you know their header information on their email if it's email based, uh, but they will correlate IP addresses and um, and other indicators of of these these bad guys and what they're doing and how they exploit people, they can put all that stuff together and then they can package it and give it to a uh, a field office to investigate. If they see a lot of commonalities, then that could be a case. But if it's only like a you know someone lost you know five thousand dollars on an eBay purchase, um, the FBI is not going to investigate. Um, in, in the in the southern district of Florida, where I worked in Miami, the minimum fraud, if you're talking about any kind of fraud that would be investigated by the Southern District of Florida uh, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, minimum $1 million, okay? So, or they're not going to touch it. Right. Yeah, so, they don't have time, right? No, yeah, because there are so many, so much more fraud that's above a million dollars that they, they'll never be able to, to do that. So, what they do is 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 they can put it together. You, you know, if someone's out for you know ten or fifteen thousand dollars, go through the Internet Crime uh, Complaint Center, and then if if uh, if they can aggregate the losses into you know some sort of a RICO conspiracy or something like that, then they can then it would justify an investigation. But there are so so many victims and so many bad guys out there. There's no way law enforcement would ever be able to keep up with everything individually. Well, and if it's Andrew, a, I think I think we needed to have this guy back because there's we, uh, so I'm much more of this this can we have to open. I, I, I <laughs> agreed. I mean, you know, and if it's Rico, wouldn't it wouldn't it uh, indicate that they have to have samples from a lot of different victims because it's sure, record, sure, it's absolutely. Like yeah, level. all the all the predicate offenses would be built up right. by these individual acts. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to love to have you back, Rick. Um, I mean, you're just a wealth of information, and and you've certainly dispelled that helicopters are not going to be flying to our rescue anytime soon. 
Uh, and there's not a lady named Penelope back there with her fuzzy toys and stuff that's going to be able to hack our street cameras and everything else and, and our and our ring doorbells or whatever doorbells that you have to be able to get that beautiful, beautiful picture that just kind of zoomed into license plates uh, in the in the middle of the night. So, OK. Um, and I guess in the last uh, last bit, um, we always like to have our our. Um, thoughts of the day as far as uh, just kind of what we what we end up talking about right or quotes of the day do you have any quote of the day that you can share with us that maybe can share either shed some humor some light or some some wise sage advice and, and given your your age in information security can i call you dr gopher <laughs> oh my gosh of the days of gopher and jughead and veronica all the oh, wow. and board systems holy smokes um angelo knows those references too and so do i so we cast no stone windsock what's that ah. oh, oh my god <laughs> Um, okay, so my, my favorite quote is, um, it can be actually applied to anything, including cybersecurity, especially when you when you consider that the human being is really the weakest link in this whole chain, right? Okay. Um, so my quote is, uh, it's attributed to John Wayne. I don't know, I've had mixed, you know, uh, answers on whether or not he actually said it, but he said, uh, life is hard. It's harder when you're stupid. <laughs> Angelo, Rick's going to fit right in. <laughs> Co-host number three. Podcast near you. Um, wow. You want to do yours first or, maybe, or you want me to do mine? Your Go ahead and I'll, and I'll finish it off. <laughs> Dr. Gopher, we thank you for that. Um, <laughs> my, my question I want you to ponder for the next, next time you come in is, the organization CART that you belong to, did they create an acronym called HORSE so you can do CART before the horse? No, don't, don't, don't pop that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Yeah, it's, 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 anyway, my, my, my words of wisdom are complexity is the enemy of security, meaning if you can't explain it, you can't understand it, and if you can't understand and explain it, you're probably not secure. So reduce complexity, be simple, make get back to basics. There you go. Andrew. And mine is the best security device resides between our ears if we so choose to use it. So with that, uh, we do thank you, uh, Rick, for, for your sage advice and your insights as to uh, uh, our topic today, incident response, forensics. Uh, definitely want you to come back. Uh, had a had a great uh opportunity to kind of pick your brain on that but we'll have more topics i'm sure that we will love to have you back so thank you once again for coming and joining us in this podcast to our listeners please like and subscribe that helps us get people like rick on our show and so uh we thank you for your comments and look forward to our next episode so take care and thank you thanks for having me